Google Capital came to us and said, we're interested in investing. We weren't fundraising. And we said, okay, we'll talk to you. And five days later, they gave us a term sheet for $100 million. And I still remember sitting at, uh, in the conference room when they made the offer, uh, I was with Marco, and we ended the call and I sat down on the floor and put my head in my hands and was just like, holy shit. <laughs> uh, and it felt like this gap between what we thought our potential was and what the world thought suddenly collapsed. Mm. And for years, people had said, you don't have the potential you think you do. And in that moment, uh, you know, these investors said, we believe, and that was super validating. What's up, everyone? I'm Alex Lieberman. Yo, this is Jesse Puji. And this is The Crazy Ones. What's up, Crazy Ones listeners? We are back with another episode of the show. And as promised, we're testing a lot of stuff in this new year. Uh, we tested last week the new format with going through the Twitter thread, riffing about it. Today, we have our first guest, and it's coming full circle because the first person that I ever interviewed when starting Morning Brew was the CEO of Thumbtack, the uh, Amazon for services, Marco Zappacosta. And today, our first guest is his co-founder, Jonathan Swanson. Jesse, this was a fun one. Yeah, listen up. You're going to learn about building billion-dollar businesses, uh, one person having six EAs, and how to cure men testosterone issues take a listen and let us know what you think uh shoot us an email at the crazy ones at morningbrew.com and uh let us know if you want some more good interviews like this jonathan swanson thank you so much for joining the crazy ones thank you for having me it's uh your guest number one you, you are you're i feel like there's actually this is the most appropriate thing because <laughs> you are a man that lives by experimentation. You've literally written medium posts about your life experiments and you are a live experiment of this show right now. We're trying <laughs> to see if uh, people enjoy the guest banter. And uh, it's cool also to reconnect. You know, I first learned about you um, in our post-exit founders group. You did a really cool Zoom call with all of us and uh, it's full circle because eight year, eight, seven years ago when we were starting Morning Brew, the first person I ever interviewed for Morning Brew was your co-founder for Thumbtack, Marco. Oh, wow, cool. So it's like a awesome. crazy thing that the first yeah. interview for Crazy Ones is also a Thumbtack guy. And nice. I know we'll you've talked to Jesse in the past. Yeah, man. Yeah, we well, uh, we have a crazy story. I don't think I told you this, Alex. The, when Ampush was starting, we were like looking for a, an awesome first engineer. And we found this amazing guy from Minnesota. Forgetting his name, Jonathan. I don't remember his name. But anyway, he Chris was like... Miller? Yes, Chris Mueller. And we were like, oh, this guy's the best. He's amazing. And he calls us and he breaks our heart. He's like, I'm going to go to this this other startup that's really building something that I think a lot of people, like he was just like loved the, the, the product vision. And then later on, he's like, you should come meet my founders. And mm -hmm. I went to this like little back street in Minna and like the worst part of San Francisco and walk into this thing. And that's Marco and, and Jonathan. And it's like, that's hey right. guys. And, uh, and we've known each other since then and shared a love for growth marketing, growth hacking, and offshore, you know, labor and everything else, everything in between. Yeah, yeah. I love it. That office was in the like worst neighborhood in Soma. <laughs> worst. Yeah. You you get you get accosted on the way to the office daily. Oh my god. Well, we're going to uh, explore a lot of these topics, but I want to start with uh, maybe a little bit of a deeper question to allow us to talk about some of your businesses and what you're doing today. You obviously have had a number of big wins from a professional perspective. I would say Thumbtack being one of them. You know, the business is incredible. You've raised $700 million. I believe last valuation I saw was a report of $3 billion. Like, you have that win. And so I'm always fascinated when founders have a win. What is it that motivates them to do anything else, right? So you've, you're now working on Athena, you're working on power set, like you're doing a lot of shit in your life. Like what is it that propels you forward after that first win? So I think two things. One, I don't feel like I've won. Uh, when, you know, you go back to what Marco and Sandra and I were talking about when we started Thumbtack, our ambition was to be the Amazon of local services. And we made a lot of progress. We've got a big team now, raised lots of capital, but we're not there yet. 
And so uh, there's a lot left to do at Thumbtack. But even if Thumbtack does reach its full potential and become the Amazon local services, I just always want to swing bigger. It's like we've got one life to live and I want to start as many businesses as we can, do as much as we can. And yeah, it's like life is short. So, you know, swing for the fences. Yeah, I'm curious, it, it, just to, for everyone listening to back up maybe, and I don't know if I've ever asked you this, like, what's your story? Like, tell us about how you grew up and how did you end up becoming an entrepreneur and how did Thumbtack come to be? Yeah, so I uh, grew up in the Midwest, like you, Jesse. Uh, both my parents grew up on farms. I um, went out east for school, uh, studied philosophy and economics, and I was a political junkie, so I went to work at the White House, which was cool life experience. Got to work in the West Wing uh, and have some pretty fun life experiences, but... I knew I didn't want to be politics forever because politics is a circus and uh, really just motivated to do something big. I wanted to be part of something that mattered and something that really challenged me personally. And, you know, I was a shy kid growing up and first time, you know, the chief of staff of the White House came up to me and asked me to do something. I was fucking terrified. (laughs) Uh, But being able to rise to those occasions just showed me that I was like, man, There's so much more potential if I'm challenged constantly. And it seemed like starting a business would be the best way to be challenged constantly. And it absolutely is. (laughs) And so uh, with a couple of friends, we started brainstorming ideas. So every Sunday we got together and uh, we would brainstorm startups to start. And, you know, most of our ideas were dumb or idiotic or didn't go anywhere. Do you remember any of uh, those early ideas that you didn't push forward with? Oh, we had lots of them. I mean, like dog rental. Uh, we we no had one that we any dog started. rental entrepreneurs out there. Yeah, we, <laughs> we had uh, one that we started moving forward with. It was a financial accounts aggregator. They would connect all of your financial accounts, put it in one place, so you could track it in one place. Um, you know, some of you may have heard of Mint that launched, yep. <laughs> and it launched like we've been thinking about this for a couple of months, and we saw that thing launch, and we're like, whoa, they've nailed it. There's like no chance for us. And so we went back to the drawing board. And fortunate for us, uh, we came back to this idea of local services, which turned out to be a 10x bigger idea. And the motivation there was, you know, Amazon's making it trivially easy to buy any product. And the same should be true of any service. And so we, you know, were ambitious and naive and just jumped in and started working on it. And it's certainly harder than we ever expected. Uh, but we've made great progress and yeah, we're, we're closer to bringing that vision to life than we ever have. Did you, were you, and did you have any entrepreneurial inclinations growing up? Like were your parents entrepreneurs? Where did that, I'm just curious because it, it comes from different people from different places. Where did it come from for you? Yeah, I, I don't like rules or constraints. And I think that's common among many entrepreneurs is like, how can you hack a system um, and be unconstrained? And, uh, in college, I started this very geeky nonprofit called students for saving social security. Uh, it was about reforming social security. Um, and I, it took off and there's chapters all across the country. I went to DC, took time off from school and it was really my first taste of what it was like to harness a group of people and have a shared mission and, and swing for the fences and you know we failed because social security is still uh still messed up but it hmm. uh, that gave me the taste for it in college and i knew i i wanted to do something again and in fact we we pitched uh peter Thiel for that nonprofit. i'm just remembering um and uh he offered to help because uh, he was interested in this cause and we said we actually don't want your investment here because we think we're going to come back with a better idea one day. And so we'll come back when we have a technology business you can fund. Did Peter Thiel end up investing in Thumbtack? And then we tried to get uh, Peter Thiel and Founders Fund to invest and they, they passed. <laughs> so uh, uh, on that note, my understanding is first two years of Thumbtack, you slept in a closet and you were rejected by 42 VCs. What was the biggest reason people gave no's? Uh, I mean, all the reasons we weren't making any money. Um, there were lots of dead bodies. Lots of people had tried to start a local service marketplace and failed. And, um, we, you know, had a process for signing up lots of service pros at scale. That was pretty, pretty cool, but we hadn't figured out payments or invoicing or 
you know, how to make money and all these things. And um, yeah, the first few years were really tough. We didn't have any money and it was just a small team of 10 of us working out of a house. And it's kind of the like do or die and you work all day long, all night long, and just hope you can survive to fight another day. One thing uh, that I'm also interested about, and this is kind of nuanced to what you guys built, but there's a lot of people trying to build networks and marketplaces out there. Obviously, the thing, the the now old adage that uh, Andrew Chen talks about and has written about in his book, you know, the cold star problem. How did you guys crack that problem in the early days? Yeah, so you either have to get supply or demand and uh, ultimately you have to get both. And so we started with supply because we said, hey, if we get demand and there's no, no service pros, then this doesn't work. And so we, uh, we tried a number of different ways of acquiring service pros, but one way really worked and that was uh, Craigslist. And so all these service pros were listing their jobs on Craigslist. We went out and found them and said, hey, there's a new platform for you. You can sign up with us. And instead of posting a job ad every week on Craigslist, which is really dumb, you post with us once and then uh, we'll help you find jobs forever. And so we actually created a way for the pros to sign up and create their profile on Thumbtack and then auto post that on Craigslist as well, because that's where the demand was. And this scaled up to a point where it, it was like a quarter of all Craigslist service volume, all these wow. auto posts <laughs> from uh, Thumbtack Pros. And then, you know, not surprisingly, we got a cease and desist that told us uh, we, we should stop this. and <laughs> We've been banned from <laughs> Craigslist. And that was one of those moments where like, shit, uh, this was working. We were signing up, you know, tens of thousands of pros a week. Um, and now this main channel has been shut down and we had to find a new way. And, you know, the question we asked ourselves is like, what's bigger than Craigslist? And we said, well, what about the internet? What if we mm -hmm. crawl the whole internet, use text classification to identify the server, the handyman's uh, blog post, the wedding photographer's website. And from these billions of pages we crawled, we created an index of tens of millions of service pros, websites who were looking for active work. And then we created a mechanism to reach out to them uh, programmatically and get them to sign up. Uh, for Thumbtack. And were, awesome. were they were they creating signups or profiles um, after you reached out or was it the type of thing you were scraping the, their interest in jobs, turning them into jobs on the site? If there was demand for it, then you would just let them know that someone's trying to hire you for a job now, come sign up. Exactly both. So, you know, when we could sign them up directly, we did. But, you know, if Alex came and said, hey, I'm looking for a dog walker on our site, we would syndicate it, we called, mm -hmm. to a bunch of dog walkers who hadn't yet signed up. And we'd say, hey, here's a live customer. They're looking to work with someone exactly like you. Click here and you can talk to him for free. And before you can do that, you've got to create your profile. And that created this machine that allowed us to reach out to hundreds of thousands of pros, sign them up. And then by virtue of them creating profiles, that created a magnet for traffic from Google. And then we had our first uh, virtuous flywheel. That's awesome. I, I, by the way, as a quick aside, like, you know, there's that classic vertical Craigslist image that people have seen where like every category mm -hmm. on Craigslist is going to become a big business. I feel like there's another graphic we can make that doesn't exist, which is like how Craigslist has fueled the growth of all these like Uber 25% of their drivers have come from their door to, like there's so many businesses that have hacked Craigslist in some way to become like the behemoths that they are. And I just think it's like a funny, all roads lead back to Craigslist. Totally. It's, <laughs> it's easy to give Craigslist a hard time for not innovating on product, but if they did, uh, we wouldn't be here. So it's <laughs> yeah, the, great, be the greatest gift. Amazon. <laughs> So They'd be like WeChat in China or something. Like everyone would just go to Craigslist for everything. Oh, the the amount of unmonetized distribution that they have given companies over the years is wild. Yeah. Jonathan, mm -hmm. it, I had a moment like this in my journey. I'm curious if, if you remember yours or had one and remember it. Was there a moment where you maybe looked at yourself in the mirror or you looked at Marco and the team and you go, I want to be an entrepreneur. Like this is it. Like I'm not questioning being an entrepreneur anymore. This is the job for me. This is what I want to do with my life. Do you remember what, if, did that happen to you? And if so, what was it like? You know, from the moment we started, I loved it and it was hard. And, you know, if you asked me of the last decade plus at Thumbtack, how often were you killing it? I would say like less than 20% of the time, like 80% mm -hmm. of the time, I felt like we were failing. 
we weren't meeting our potential. Yeah. We we're growing too slow. It sucks. Like we're actually going to fail. <laughs> we're running out of money. There was brief windows where everything was going right. Um, and I just got addicted to uh, chasing, chasing that. So I, I think from the very beginning, I, I liked it. You know, I wasn't sure if it was going to work. You know, four or five years into Thumbtack, I remember thinking, man, this could fail and I would have accomplished nothing and I would have no real skills <laughs> that are transferable. <laughs> now, you know, at some point I was Craigslist like, well, hacker now I've actually, aside. Yeah, exactly. At some point I've learned some real skills and I can take those to other positions. But yeah, there were certainly lots of more uh, existential angst at the beginning. I, I wanted, it, do you remember when it went away or how it went away? There was one moment, uh, it's never gone away, but there's one moment that really transformed things. We had really struggled to fundraise, you know, you know, pitch 42 investors for a series A, got 42 no's, going to run out of money. But, you know, fast forward a couple years later, things were going better. Google Capital came to us and said, we're interested in investing. We weren't fundraising. And we said, okay, we'll talk to you. And five days later, they gave us a term sheet for a hundred million dollars. And I still remember sitting at, uh, in the conference room when they made the offer uh, as with Marco and we ended the call and I sat down on the floor and put my head in my hands and was just like, holy shit. (laughs) Uh, and it felt like this gap between what we thought our potential was and what the world thought suddenly collapsed. And for years, people had said, you don't have the potential you think you do. And in that moment, uh, you know, these investors said, we believe. And that was super validating. And yeah, it didn't take existential risk off the table, but it meant we could get aggressive. Yeah. I want to, um, in a minute, move on to all the other cool stuff you're doing. But two more questions about Thumbtack. Um, We'll start with the first what are the most intentional things you did over the life of the business to navigate the co-founder relationship, which I think like any really important, intense relationship has its challenges, but also like its beauty. What are decisions you made to make it work over the years? Yeah, so I think it's lots of talking and check-ins. And I think this is true of all relationships is like, if you stew on something, it's not going to make it better. Yeah. <laughs> and my co-founders and I got in the habit of doing monthly breakfasts, quarterly reviews with each other, you know, executive coaches. And it's all just a way of saying we, you know, talk to each other a lot. And if something is bothering us, you talk about it and you don't always resolve it. But most of the time, 90% of the frustration goes away if you have a good conversation. And I was lucky to pick partners who I fundamentally trust and respect. And so absolutely like tension or disappointments or frustrations along the way. But if you've got that foundation, you can, you can work through stuff as long as you're talking about it. Yeah. Was there a big aha example you could share that came up as you guys talked more and more that like was very powerful or useful? You know, for me, I can't speak to them. I'm sure I do things that annoy them to this day. But for me, uh, the kind of Zen moment was accepting my co-founders for who they are and not expecting them to change. Mm. And they have amazing strengths and we all have weaknesses. And when I focused on the things I wanted to change about them, it's just a recipe for frustration. And it's true of like relationship with your partner or friends or anything. And I think if I could give myself one piece of advice from 20 years ago is like, accept people for who they are. Don't try to change them. And you're lucky if they do. And some of your best friends or partners may be willing to change for you. But if you expect it, it's just, uh, you're just going to be disappointed most of the time. And um, that, that's been pretty profound. How, how do you like coach somebody else to do that? Like, how would you, if, if there was another founder that you were mentoring and they kept having a frustration because you saw them doing that, what would you tell them to do? Yeah, look, I think uh, you you have to decide, like, is this someone I want to work with? And is it someone I'm willing to work with if they don't change? And, you know, I, I, I counsel people, guys who are getting ready to go get married and they're like, hey, I'd like to marry this person, but, um, you know, I really hope X or Y, Z changes. And I'm like, 
dude, that's just, that's a bad idea. Like yeah. if you're happy today and nothing changes, that's a great relationship. And then right. you should work to change things. And like we all, I'm very growth minded and I work with people who are, but if the expectation is nothing changes, you're just, uh, it's a much more stoical <laughs> approach to life and you're, you're much more set up for success. Totally. Yeah. I think there's a really big nuance there that took me a long time to grapple with, which was people can want to change and work towards change without expecting it or needing it. And you're kind of saying that, but it's like people, they go, wait, it's like, wait, if I accept my partner, whether it's my co-founder or my wife for exactly who they are, then they're never going to change. And no, no, that's not okay. I, I need them to change. I need them to change. No, no, I can't, can't do that. I have to actually create tension and I have to make it so that they're going to change. Well, and to that Go point, ahead, it's like, it's like yeah. why the, those, it sounds so cliche, but like these fundamental values of like trust and being aligned on what the, the ultimate mission is and knowing that you can always lean on that person no matter what the situation is. It's like this stuff is cliche, but it's generally cliches are pretty true, which is like mm -hmm. all of that stuff is the bedrock. And it's like, yeah, it's like gravy if you can get people to evolve and grow in ways that just continue to sweeten the deal. Totally. Yeah, I mean, with founders, it's uh, you have all the intensity of a marriage relationship, but there's no makeup sex, right? So you, you, have, to, you have to find other ways uh, that you can bond, whether it's going for a long run or having a drink or whatever it might be. Vegas trips. That is, Vegas trips. that is the most yeah. incredible. That is the most incredible quote. <laughs> I, I am absolutely stealing that. Um, Jonathan, Before we move on, I have one question. Yeah. I I want to hear again, like successful. Alex had three billion, all this cool stuff. What was like? What was a really, really tough near death moment for you for the business? The time you wanted to quit the most. Tell us about the really hard, the hard time. So the time we got closest to just getting absolutely kneecapped. I woke up uh, on a Saturday morning and I had a message from a team member in the Philippines who was awake overnight and said, Jonathan, I've searched for Thumbtack in Google and it doesn't show up. Not like oh, God. Handyman in San Francisco doesn't show up. I searched for Thumbtack.com <laughs> and there's oh no God. results. Google at the time was our number one source of traffic. Uh, we had built a very successful SEO machine. And when I saw this, I knew something was horrible. <laughs> and I went to you know Google Analytics and our traffic had not fallen by 10 or 20%, but 100, zero. And we were de-indexed. We were completely removed from Google. It was like being unpersoned by, <laughs> by Google. And we had no idea why. Uh, and so this was, I, I was supposed to be leaving a couple days later for a wedding. And then after the wedding, I was going to propose to my wife <laughs> or my uh, wow. then Great timing. fiance. Yeah. So it was terrible timing. And, you know, on Monday we had a new class of thumbtackers starting. I remember there's like 30 new people starting that I had to do like thumbtack orientation for. <laughs> and it was just all hands on deck for, you know, 18 hours a day for the next couple of weeks. And basically uh, we eventually figured out what had happened. There was a miscommunication about the way Google had interpreted one of our link building strategies. They had thought we were doing something shady, uh, which we weren't, and they punished us severely. Um, and it was the most intense, uh, definitely, period, because if we didn't fix it, we were going to die, not like in a year, but in weeks, because traffic's just zero and revenue zero and you're dead. And we had, you know, probably a couple hundred employees at this point. And so I just remember shuttling between new, new hire orientation, you know, calling someone uh, on the press, trying to get them to not write a story <laughs> about how we were dying. Uh, meanwhile, coordinating with our engineers to figure out how we could solve this problem with Google. And it was insanely intense, but it was actually my favorite two weeks mm. in Thumbtack history uh, because we survived. And... You know, had we died, I wouldn't say that. <laughs> My worst two weeks. But it was one of those moments where you're like backed into the corner and it's just about survival. And you're just like mother bear and you've got 200 cubs that you want to protect and you're just going to do whatever it takes to fix the problem. What was me, the craziest, most that... resourceful, out of, wild thing you did during that two weeks that you did like 
that was just totally creative and weird to try to resolve it. Yeah, the way Google works is wild. They have this uh, portal where you can go and see like a message from their search quality team. And they're basically like, you've been de-indexed for doing something wrong. We won't tell you what. And um, they then basically ask you to explain yourself or ma- make some sort of human sacrifice <laughs> to, to like appease the Google gods. And uh, it took us, it, it took a whole team of engineers to basically like, we put ourselves in their shoes. They think we've done something wrong. What could that be? We try to reverse engineer all the things that they're looking at. We then present those proposals like, do you think we're doing this or that? Um, if it's this, you know, it's in the clear. And yeah, it was like we pretended to be on the search quality team at Google for a couple of weeks. And mm. um, we just kept making uh, uh, sac- human sacrifices, we called them until one was uh, acceptable <laughs> and then we all moved on with our lives. <laughs> so I think that the number one lesson from uh, this entire experience is um, don't fuck with Google or get them upset because <laughs> they will make your life very painful. Yeah. Well, and don't you, uh, I mean, we were just talking about one of my favorite moments at Thumbtack, which is when Google gave us a hundred million dollars. So they were both our investors, yeah. our greatest source of traffic and, you know, a pain in our ass at the same time. But we're, we were lucky to have <laughs> them. Oh, the, the, the irony of if Google would have killed you while they were your biggest <laughs> check into the business would have been wild. Um, it's like, it's like those businesses where people buy from one part of the, the military and sell to the other part of the military. <laughs> You know, oh, there's yeah. like people uh, who make tens of millions of dollars just buying surplus from one part and selling it to the other part. Yeah, I mean, Wild. Google's insane. It's like more powerful than most com- countries today. It's the yeah. greatest business that's ever existed, and we get, a, we get a witness it. It's pretty cool. So, Jonathan, I've listened to you tell <clears throat> um, a pretty amazing story. I want to say it was like seven years ago at this point. The story of uh, Macan. Hmm. Um, can you share just the the journey of your experience with Macan and the impact it had on you. Because I also think it's an amazing bridge between what you built at Thumbtack, but also what you're doing at Athena. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, when Thumbtack was scaling up, we had all these service pros, a handyman, a DJ signing up, and they would create profiles where they describe their services. And, you know, it turns out a plumber is great at plumbing, but not very good at writing marketing copy about themselves. And so Marco and I would rewrite all these profiles by hand to help them put their best foot forward. And we did this for the first few hundred service pros thinking that there's this like broken window theory where if we did the first hundred, then like everyone would raise to that bar. But that turned out to be totally wrong. And it was clear we're just going to have to proofread these things forever. And so I put a job ad up on a site called Odesk at the time. It's now Upwork and we had for proofreaders. And we had applications from all around the world, from Philippines, India, you know, Jamaica, the United States, at all price points. And so I thought this was cool. Uh, I'll run a couple dozen people through a practice test and we'll see who wins. And to my absolute amazement, this woman in the Philippines named Mikan um, beat the Americans and everyone else, not just on price, but on quality. She was a better Mm. English proofreader than Americans. (laughs) And so this just like was a jaw dropping moment for me where it opened my eyes to this world of talent outside of America. And obviously like I knew that intellectually, but I hadn't really viscerally experienced it. And so we hired Mikan and she did proofreading for us. She was great. She grew up in Manila in what we would call poverty. Her dad earned $2 a day and this was her first job and she did a great job. And so I said, Hey, let's build a team of proofreaders around her, uh, around you. And I helped mentor her to become a manager. And so she went from individual contributor to a manager of five and 10 proofreaders to then eventually a general manager of a team of a few hundred to eventually a head of our team in the Philippines managing over a thousand people. And so this is, you know, this woman from poverty, her first job is with us as a proofreader. And then she grows on to manage thousand plus people. And to me, this was probably one of the most gratifying experiences I've ever had because I got to be part of someone growing like that. And, you know, she did the hard work, but I was there to support her and it felt just so good. Uh, to to help unlock that potential. And that's really what motivated me to get into entrepreneurship is like, 
unlock my potential similar to you guys probably. And to see that with Mikan was just life changing. Wow. That's yeah. It's such a powerful, you know, I think a lot of entrepreneurs, I think there's entrepreneurs who want to maybe change certain behaviors in the world. Like, you know, I think a lot of entrepreneurs, myself included, just love helping other people learn and grow. And there's nothing, it's like hard to find anything more gratifying than that, especially when there are people who are close to you or you're having an impact. Um, so how do, talk about the next chapter. Like maybe talk a little bit about your transition uh, out of Thumbtack, but then how you started to think about what was next, kind of in the second act, the trials and tribulations and how you ultimately kind of netted out where you are. Yeah, so I love, love Thumbtack, um, but at some point it became... Um, a bigger company. And I think lots of entrepreneurs are more motivated by the small scrappy stage. And that's certainly true for me. And so I moved to chairman at Thumbtack. And, you know, I had this experience of Mikan kind of in the back of my head of how many other Mikans in the world are there that are undiscovered who are working in poverty because they haven't been connected with the right opportunity. And, you know, people like the three of us are just like, so fortunate to have unlimited opportunity because we live in America and, you know, we have some tech skills and all sorts of things. Um, but lots of people aren't in countries where they have that opportunity, but with the internet, uh, you can digitally travel to America every day. You don't need an American passport. Uh, you just need an internet connection. And, um, you know, I had had a, Amazing experience working with a woman named Marnie, uh, different than Mikan, uh, on our team in the Philippines as my personal assistant at Thumbtack. And we started off doing the basic stuff, scheduling, email, travel. And then I just started experimenting every week. I was like, let's run a new experiment. You try doing something new with me. And most of those experiments fail as experiments do, but lots of them worked and we kept adding new things. And one of those experiments was a monthly entrepreneur dinner where I would host people at my house, get a chef, and I would meet uh, new entrepreneurs. And my motivation was I didn't really have any friends outside of Thumbtack. <laughs> I told Marnie, I was like, can you help me make friends? Because <laughs> I just work all the time. And so <laughs> we planned these uh, monthly dinners. And I met, I met most of my good friends uh, through that. And one of the friends I made through one of those dinners, uh, name was Catherine. And, uh, you know, a few years later, Marnie was helping plan our wedding. And wow. um, this wow. experience of having Marnie help with kind of basic stuff to relationship stuff to ultimately like helping me meet and, um, and marry my wife uh, was so powerful and I wanted to see if I could connect these two dots of like, how can we discover more talented people in the world and then connect them with, you know, entrepreneurs, investors, uh, ambitious people like you two um, to give them more leverage. And so I uh, started Athena a couple of years ago. Athena recruits and trains top 1% assistants in the Philippines and matches them with ambitious people. And our goal is to build both the um, kind of talent machine as well as the technology and tools around delegation. And, um, you know, I'm, there are entrepreneurs who are better at me than in almost all dimensions, product and operation than management. But what I'm really good at is delegating and Athena's mission is to own the art and science of delegation and to give more leverage to, uh, smart, ambitious people. So what on delegation, we can't not ask, like, what's. What are what are the biggest mistakes you see, you know, CEOs, high powered people making delegation? Or what's the what's the Swanson playbook for delegation? Yeah, I mean, uh, oh god, you most... have opened a can of words, worms, yeah. absolute <laughs> can of worms right now. We can, we can talk about this a lot. <laughs> How long we got? So, I, I would say most CEOs and founders are actually pretty mediocre delegators um, when it comes to working with an assistant. Um, we've worked with, you know, a thousand plus at Athena and some of the best YC, Sequoia, back companies. And most founders never graduate beyond the kind of beginner levels. So the, you know, the biggest mistakes, number one, the cardinal sin of delegation is thinking it's faster or better to do something yourself. And of course it is. You can always do something faster or better yourself. But the way you gain leverage is you spend more time up front. Um, delegating something so that you can train your assistant to do that for you every time, right? Like, you know, you might, I, I might talk to a founder who's like, oh, it's not worth my time to delegate 
RSVPing for a party to my assistant. I can do that in two clicks. I'm like, sure. But I trained my EA to do it once and I've never done it again. Like I don't put my credit card in the internet. Uh, why would I waste the two minutes that it takes to check out if my assistant can do that? I don't wait on you know, on the phone to talk to the bank. Like my assistant can get in on the hold, wait for me, and then dial me in at the last minute. And um, this kind of like incessant craving for more is certainly one of the strongest dimensions that we see in the best delegators. Um, and mediocre delegators tend to just be satisfied uh, with the way things are. Uh, so that's number one. Um, I mean, the, ne the next biggest problem uh, CEOs tend to make is they don't invest long term. They have one EA for a couple of years and then another one for a couple of years. These relationships compound over time. You want to invest for a decade plus. You want to spend time every week. So I have a standing meeting with my assistant. We've been working together for a long time and I still spend time with her face-to-face -face the, during the week so that we can share what's working, what's not, new things to experiment with. Um, and then, you know, I think you just need to have a very high tolerance for experimentation and failure. Mm. Um, most things won't work. Um, and I've, I work with lots of founders who work with assistant for a little bit and they're like, hey, I tried these three things and they weren't that great. I'm like, well, you should try a lot more. <laughs> uh, you, you know, you need to try dozens of things, maybe... 50, 75% won't work as well as you hope, especially out of the gate. Um, but if you keep experimenting, you just layer on more and more uh, powerful things over time. And I'm happy to share, you know, all sorts of crazy stuff I delegate. Does your delegation skills, do they go beyond, like, do, like, do you have special insights for delegating to VPs and managers or is it, this, this, is it very focused on kind of the EAs and stuff? Yeah. So, I mean, what I'm talking about now is with an assistant and, um, you know, you, you obviously need to delegate very differently for an assistant to um, a CFO. <laughs> um, you know, sure, C-level, sure. you need to, you know, reports, you need to give total autonomy and um, freedom to, and you empower them at the highest level and hold them accountable against the very highest goals of the company. Um, with an assistant, you need to be much more prescriptive and right. um, more detailed in and how you delegate and you know we we have like a levels of delegation we talk about athena which i'm happy to walk you guys through from kind of like beginner to mastery and what that looks like with an assistant and what we find is most people go through the same journey they started the most basic way of delegating which is delegating by task and over time you can delegate to the very highest level which is delegating through goals and there's steps in between yeah i i want to i want to get into this pyramid, uh, the, the the Maslow's hierarchy of delegation. Um, and I want to do that through talking about it within the context of your life. But before we switch mm. to that, I want to talk about within Athena, kind of how you have run this business differently now that it's your second time around. So, uh, you know, a profound conversation that I had with one of the co-founders of FanDuel probably a year and a half ago was he was he he has like three or four companies now and i was like how do you do all this stuff how are you running these four businesses while being happily married and you know he talked about delegation but he's also like the first time i was an entrepreneur 80 percent of my time was spent the wrong way it was a waste and so he's like <laughs> mm -hmm. i just spend my time on the 20 percent of things now so for you what are the 20 percent of things that you spend your time on now and what are like things that say an entrepreneur or CEO thinks that they should be spending their time on that like you do not spend your time on and you've delegated mm. whether it's to EAs or to mm. other people within your company now? Yeah, great question. We, you know, Thumbtack was a very traditional venture backed experience. We raised money. We did all the, all the things that venture backed companies do. And I, uh, I did whatever was best for Thumbtack always, even if it wasn't what I wanted. You know, this person may not be the th person I'm most excited to work with, but they're right for the role. Um, 12 hours of interviews today sounds terrible, but it's what Thumbtack needs. Um, and when I started Athena, there's a, f a few people from um, Thumbtack's team in the Philippines who came over and, and helped me start it. And uh, we just did a, a daydream where we said, what is a dream business for us unconstrained by the way we've built businesses before? And we said a couple things. One, uh, we 
control our destiny so we don't raise external money. You know, investors are great, but if we're in the fortunate position to self-fund it, then let's uh, let's do that. And uh, I don't like meetings, so let's not have meetings. <laughs> so one standing meeting a week uh, with the team in the early days, and we worked very independently. And now what I say, this is like the most optimal way to run a business if you're trying to get to Mars. No, I would like get in an office and I'd meet all the time. But I wanted to build a business that I wanted to work at for decades to come. And so I built it much more around the way I like working. Um, and so I spent the first couple of years helping us get to product market fit. And once we unleashed product market fit and we had this very long wait list, then I brought in a CEO. Um, someone who had built, um, he had worked at a company in the Philippines that went from 1,000 to 20,000 people. He wow. managed uh, all that growth. And I said, hey, we're at 100 people. Uh, let's do it again. And so he's come in. We've gone from 100 to 1,000 people, actually, uh, since he joined 18 months ago. Wow. And you know, our goal is to create tens of thousands of jobs in the Philippines and developing world and beyond. And now he, um, you know, he has a different style and he's running... Um, he has more meetings than, than I would have done uh, and all sorts of things. But I've carved out a role for me where I just help the CEO focus on talent. That's the biggest thing I can, I can help with is like finding the right people in the business. Um, that's 10x more impactful than any project I could work on. And talk about some of your other ventures too, Jonathan. And, and maybe like, is, what's the string between them or how do you think, is there a string? Does that matter? Yeah, my main focus, you know, started a Thumbtack chairman there, started Athena chairman there, um, and um, really helping the CEO scale the business. And then launch launching a new uh, venture fund now called PowerSet. Um, PowerSet is a founders backing founders venture fund. So we give capital and coaching to active founders, not to invest in their company, uh, but so that they can invest in other startups. And um, it's basically this decentralized scout sort of model. Um, the thing that's interesting about this, we think, is if you look, you know, last year there was about $500 billion invested in venture capital. One or 2% of that came from active founders. Most of it came from institutional VCs. And right. institutional VCs are great, um, but active founders have the best deal flow. That's actually where VCs get most of their deal flow. And they have the most uh, fresh and relevant operating experience. And so we think that number shouldn't be 1% or 2%, but you know, 10 or 20%. And so we basically go out and find elite technical founders. We give them a million dollars, create their own fund. They can put other money in it if they want. Um, and we run all the administration and do all the work for them. So there's no incremental work. Um, and you know, the type of people we work with are too busy to raise a fund and it's irrational, frankly, right. for them to be investing because they have too much on their plate and they're scaling a very exciting company. And so we, um, we take all the work away. And so instead of writing a 10 K personal check, they can now write a hundred or 200 K, um, larger check and we take care of the rest and then we split the carry with them. That's, That's awesome. And it, why, why deeply technical? You know, it's funny. I, I love this idea, by the way, for 10 years at Ampush, <clears throat> I, I, Uber came in when they were 10, 10 cities and said, I need your help, Jesse. And mm -hmm. then I met all the Coachavas and apps flyers when they were doing mobile measurement, when they were tiny series A's, like uh, this would have been great for me in that seat because mm -hmm. I literally saw hundreds of billions in market value sitting at Ampush. Right. Um, yeah. but I'm curious why deeply technical versus like people who are going to be in the flow. Yeah, I mean, you probably heard of Tom Perkins' law. It's the more technical risk, the less market risk. Um, and if there's no technical risk, then the more fierce the market risk. So we believe lots of the generational companies in these frontier um, markets, artificial intelligence, um, bio, et cetera, um, will require technical unlocks. And yeah, while those technical founders may not be as um, you know prolifically social as you jesse are hosting like parties at their house their connect their friends are all you know writing white papers um and they're using the two new tools and so they're really in the front lines of um lots of these efforts and non-technical founders tend to be um more tapped into kind of scout programs and that sort of thing so we think it's just uh gotcha. you know the some of the most valuable founders in um kind of untapped market 
Oh, super cool. Um, we only have a few minutes left, and I'd be remiss to not talk about the way that you've employed some of your business principles in your personal life. Um, so can you share uh, the way in which you have taken delegation to an extreme in your personal life? And you can do that by sharing, like you were talking about before, this this pyramid of delegation, the, you know, the white belt to black mm-hmm. belt, and also some of the r- most ridiculous shit that you've delegated in your life. <laughs> Sure, it's a it's a long list. It's not ridiculous to him. Uh, <laughs> it's genius to him. Uh, well, yeah. So I'll just rattle off some things I I do, and uh, I'm lucky. I mean, one of the great things of Athena, I'm lucky to have a half dozen EAs who support me now. And I know that may sound insane to lots of people, but to me, it's obvious it's not enough. Uh, it's Wait, how many? That I missed that. A half dozen. Wow. And isn't there one that that manages the others? Yeah, I have a chief of staff uh, and then a lead EA who manages others. And they specialize in different areas, which I can talk about. Um, But, you know, for my whole life, I've experienced time scarcity, where it's just like there's not enough time. And, you know, people say time's a great equalizer. It's like whether you're Warren Buffett or a man on the street, you've got 24 hours in the day. And that always irked me. And I'm like, how can I bend that rule? I want, I want, you know, 30 hours in the day or 48. And what I've discovered with an assistant, you can. And you literally get more hours in the day. And so as I've layered on more assistance, I've gone from time scarcity to what I call time abundance. Um, I, you know, I've got a couple of venture back, a venture back business, you know, Athena's a thousand people, this new venture fund and multiple days a week, I will get to lunch and I'll say, I've finished my work for the day. What should I do this afternoon? And that feeling of time abundance is what allows me to, to tackle new things. And that's only possible with a great team that supports me. And so, you know, some examples of, of things the team helps me with. One is like building relationships. So my uh, wife, uh, mom just had 75th birthday. We wanted to do something special for her. So uh, we had our assistant uh, connect with her, uh, use our Facebook account, and then fo- reach out to every one of her Facebook friends. Um, and say, hey, it's her birthday coming up. Can you write a special note um, with something you love and respect or a good memory uh, about her? And we collected all of these. And then for every day on her 75th year, she got a note in the morning that was from one of her friends. So it was a, a birthday gift was 365 notes every day. And now wow. doing a project like this, if I was doing it myself, it would be insane. I'd have to be like unemployed and it would just be like a two-week project. But... Being able to have a team that can tackle this, we just came up with the idea, we delegated it, and it was done. Um, and that allowed us to give this cool gift to her mom. Um, you know, I avoid lots of inter- uh, annoyance uh, by delegating. You know, I don't put my credit card in the internet. I don't wait on hold. Um, I don't do anything that's kind of rote or monotonous. Um, the team helps me hire. Uh, so, you know, if I wanted to hire a nanny, um, you know, without an assistant, I might put a job ad up and talk to three or four um, candidates, but with our team, we put up job ads all across the Midwest and we vetted a thousand plus candidates for a role that is super important to us. And that allows us to find undiscovered talent, um, and just do things at this kind of scale that you wouldn't do if you were doing it on your own. I need, um, I need you to talk about one more. Sorry. I'm just, yeah. I can't yeah, stop yeah. thinking about it is yeah. your debt, your del your interest in and your delegation of things, uh, containing phthalates. Uh, sure. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, the first thing I like with our EA, we, we had our first create a digital health record. I've always wanted like all my health stuff in one place. And so I was like, Hey, can you reach out to every doctor I've ever worked with for the last 20 years, um, from my email and ask for all our digital health records. And so we pulled all of those in and had them in one place and that felt good. Um, and then I was listening to this podcast uh, by Shanna Swan on Rogan, and some of you may have heard of her. She basically, um, there's this mystery, there has been a mystery about testosterone falling 1% per year for the last couple of decades and miscarriage rates increasing 1% per year. These are like bad trend lines and people weren't sure what was behind this. And her theory is that it's uh, phthalates, which are this chemical in plastic and basically, uh, it's in plastics and cosmetics and chemicals. It's like everywhere. And this chemical disrupts your endocrine system, which lowers your testosterone, which can mean it's bad for you as an adult, but really bad for um, babies and kids. And so 
you know, if I didn't have an EA, I probably would have honestly like listened to this podcast and be like, well, we're screwed. <laughs> what, am, what am I going to do about it? I mean, it's like I've got lots of other things on my plate. Um, but since I have, you know, a great team, I said, hey, here's a book on this topic. Will you go read it? And so, yeah, I asked them to read a book for me. <laughs> and then I was like, as you read the book, uh, create a spreadsheet of every product in the book that we shouldn't have uh, in our house. And it's like, all, it's just like everywhere. It's in shampoos, it's in tea bags. It is the most insane thing. And so they made this <laughs> a spreadsheet of 100 plus uh, offending items. And then um, we created a game plan where we had our nannies walk through the house, find all the offending items, remove them, throw them away, uh, <laughs> donate them. And then we ordered all the replacements. And it honestly took us months. And we're like three months into it and we're still finding offending <laughs> items. Um, but it feels pretty awesome. I've now got, uh, you know, I've got a, a, a new uh, babe on the way and it's cool to That's know awesome. that. Congrats. Uh, thank you. That babe uh, doesn't have these toxins in their system and, um, and good for me and, and my wife too. Um, and that's just like the power. In 30 of years, they're going to write a study about that baby and how you like cure the <laughs> test. It's going to, that'll be the big thing you did all because of EAs. Well, out of curiosity, exactly. we have to, we have to bring it full circle. Did, because this is like the theory um, around phthalates, did it change your testosterone taking it out of your consumption? Yeah, I measured uh, free uh, testosterone before and after and it was 10% higher. Um, there, uh, so it was great. Uh, you know, there's lots of moving factors with yeah. exercise and yeah, diet. Yeah. So um, there's, I ju actually just ordered a test kit that will measure your um, phthalate exposure in your urine. So I'm going to, uh, you know, I'm a guinea pig, so we're going to be running these on ourselves soon. <laughs> Love it. Uh, Jesse, anything else before, uh, we wrap this? Yeah, I'm just, uh, you know, you mentioned kind of going bigger at the top of the uh, episode, like what, what keeps you sustained? What, what do you think will keep you doing these things, experimenting, building new things until, you're an old man if that's what you want to do or is that what you want to do and if it is what do you think will keep you sustained yeah uh i'm just a maximizer i just want to optimize everything and it's not for everyone and you know uh, if you're a satisficer uh you may actually uh reach happiness easier than me <laughs> but for me i just want to optimize everything in life and that's like a fun a fun thing to chase and there's yeah like I hope to live as long as we can, start as many companies as I can, have as many friends as I can. And, you know, you start the, this conversation about like, what's it feel like to succeed? And like, we've certainly had success, um, but I feel like it's just starting. And I wanna see like, how big can we go? It's like, we got one life. Let's put the chips in the middle, swing for the fences and like, see what the next level gets us. It's the, you know, it's a video game. Let's, let's level up. Love it. Jonathan Swanson, thank you so much for joining the crazy ones. Yeah, it's fun to be in with you guys. Yeah, man. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard.